Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tang Kell. Wade, we're back in the classic city after COVID. Reared its ugly head and interrupted our recording schedule. That's right. We're finally back in Athens in the awesome UGA Law School studios with the even more awesome Mr. Jim Hennerberger here with us and the wonderful folks at UGA Law School who have who have been a very big part of this since we began. But um, unfortunately, during COVID, we couldn't be here. Yeah, we had to be our own engineers during the past 18 months or so. I'm pretty sure you all knew that, uh, which we know had mixed results relating to the quality of the recordings. Turner Up Media could only do uh, so much with what we gave them. Uh, so with the lemons we gave him, he made the best lemonade he could. Reminds me of a song. Reunited and it feels so good. Oh, wow. I was thinking more. I got a different genre. I was thinking more Ken Lizzie and the boys are back in town. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be good, too. Good hair band. Always good. (laughs) It is good to be back together in Athens at the place where it all began. So tell the folks what we're uh, talking about today, Wade. Well, today we're going to keep our trend and respond to one of our loyal listeners. Good ideas that came from goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And we're going to discuss immunity hearings. So let's get to it. So, Tane, we have discussed all kind of topics during this podcast. And what you're sort of the civil guru. And one of the topics, I think it was an entire episode, but Lord knows they're all kind of blending together now. Yeah, true. Dealt with summary judgment in civil cases. But, Tane, are you aware that in very limited circumstances, there is a way for the defendant to essentially ask for summary judgment in criminal cases? Come on, Wade. We all know the parties can't ask for summary judgment in criminal cases. What in the world are you talking about? It's immunity hearings, Tane. Immunity hearings. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So, Tane, seriously, how many immunity hearings do you think you have have conducted? Probably two or three in 14 years. Yeah, see, well, we've had a few more lately. It's like it, it locally we go through spits and starts and fits and where we, we, we find a new issue that's been around for a minute and nobody was doing it, now everybody's doing it. Somebody's so. been to a seminar. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk, let's start with the relevant statutory, in the, the statutory law that, that authorizes an immunity hearing. Tell the folks basically sort of the highlights of OCGA 16-3-21. Sure. That statute says, A person is justified in threatening or using force against another when and to the extent that he or she reasonably believes that such threat or force is necessary to defend himself or herself or a third person against such other's imminent use of unlawful force. However, except as provided in Code Section 16-3-23, a person is justified in using force which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm only if he or she reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent death or great bodily injury to himself or herself or a third person or to prevent the commission of a forcible felony. That's a lot. You know, I know that our li- listeners love to for us to read law in our podcast. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. So 16.3.23 and 24 provide that a person is, use, is justified in using justifiable force, different word than deadly force, justifiable force, 
in the defense of a habitation or to prevent trespass or entry upon a non-habitation property. Now, it's interesting, Tane, that in one of the statutes, they specifically authorize the use of deadly force. I think we would call that the self-defense statute. Right. Even though it goes to defense of third parties. Right. But in the other statutes, they they don't authorize directly the deadly force. They only authorize justifiable force. Right. So we know, Tane, that we have a no duty to retreat law, right? The the stand your ground law. Right. We've all become familiar with that in OCGA section sixteen dash three dash twenty three point one. Yeah, that's uh, we we unfortunately came to learn about that because of some issues in the news. So Tane, when so we still that's all the law on self defense. That that in, and our listeners may go, wait a minute, that doesn't have anything to do with an immunity hearing. Well, it has everything to do with immunity hearing because that's what you're going to be deciding. But that's not the authorization for an immunity hearing. When a defendant claims justification as a defense, which I think is the fancy word for self defense in a lot of situations, he or she can have a demand a pretrial hearing to determine whether or not they are. And I'm going to use air quotes here because that's awesome for podcasts. Right. Immune from prosecution. That's right. So exactly how would a defendant raise a claim of immunity? I mean, obviously, first, as you said, they need to file a motion. Mm-hmm. So basically, they, the statute, the, the language of OCGA 16-3-24.2 requires a motion to be filed pretrial the motions could be made really any time before trial because the grant of immunity actually terminates the prosecution. That is the right. summary judgment move. Right. And so, <clears throat> you know, Tane, we, we've talked before about you have to file motions within 10 days of arraignment. You have to file motions within 10 days of arraignment. Um, I'm not sure that that applies to this at all. I, I think you're probably right, Wade. And I think that the, a lot of the cases show where somebody filed in the eve of trial, the day of trial, the day before trial – and the appellate course didn't even hit a speed bump going, wondering if that was within 10 days of arraignment. That wasn't an issue at all. Right. It, so, so I think what we as trial judges learned from that is um, if you have someone file an immunity motion immediately before trial, you better go ahead and have a hearing on that. Absolutely. Because, of course, if, the, if, you, it, if a mistrial is granted in a trial, let's say, Tane, mm-hmm. and so you have to retry the case. Mm-hmm. Well, then they can, for the first time, file an immunity motion. Right. Or if a motion for new trial is granted. That's exactly true. So you've got to hear the evidence and decide whether the defendant is actually immune from prosecution, meaning as a matter of law, they are entitled to a justification defense. Right. And and in the cases that I've had, Wade, and I'm sure you, you're you've had the same. We basically have a mini trial. Absolutely. I mean, we, you, you put witnesses up on the stand. They are all the people that you would uh, imagine would testify um, at the time of trial. Uh, frequently the, the defendant testifies about, you know, what they, uh, what they, what happened to them and why it was justified. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I looked all over for a case law that said for sure that testimony from an immunity hearing is admissible in the eventual trial. And there is some law that says that testimony from a motion to suppress is not admissible because you shouldn't have to give up one right to to preserve the other. But I couldn't find any any case law directly on immunity hearings. I think immunity hearings are much more akin to a bond hearing, which that's clearly admissible, right. to a preliminary hearing that's clearly admissible. I think these are more akin to that. But I can't. I'll be honest with you. I couldn't find a case squarely on point. 
that said evidence from an immunity hearing is always allowed in the eventual trial. And I agree with you that I think it's probably admissible, Wade, because think about it. I mean, it's testimony that the defendant is giving about his primary defense, which is, I was I, I used force in self-defense, or I used force because I was allowed to stand my ground. And so um, I can't imagine that that wouldn't necessarily be admissible uh, in trial. So. And, you know, we talk about these usually in the context of like murders and homicides and different things, but they're equally applicable to domestic violence cases or anything where there is a, I guess, a confrontation between two people. Very true. And so I think one of the things that's really important for everyone to understand is that this issue of immunity is an issue for the judge and not the jury. You are the person who's going to decide that that issue pre-trial. It's not something you leave for the jury. And importantly, it is a preponderance standard. Yeah, that's a good point, Wade. It's 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 a it's a preponderance standard. So um, whatever they put forth uh, at, at the at the hearing is basically, <laughs> uh, you know, they get, they get a, an easier standard than they do at the time of trial. And they uh, do. And, and so the burdens on the defendant. So tame, whenever you have the burden, generally who goes first, uh, the person who has the burden. Exactly. So, so in this so, case, the defendant has to go first. Now the defendant may not call the victim. The defendant may not call the police officer. So there is an entire possibility that the defendant will pick and choose the evidence he thinks supports his or her position. Right. Yeah. And then leave it to the state to call rebuttal witnesses that that refute that. Right. And unfortunately, sometimes we get to immunity hearings. I'm not sure both parties fully are are on comfortable footing as to what they're expected of them. And so they don't subpoena witnesses. Right. Right. And, you know, this this is a little off topic from what you and I discussed that we were going to talk about today. But it, it has come up in other contexts for me. This is the kind of hearing where I would fully anticipate that evidence will be presented by live witnesses. And, and I think that's important because so many of the criminal uh, pretrial proceedings that we deal with are based upon proffers that are made both by the state and by the defense. And it, at least in my book, this is not that kind of hearing. You no. need to hear from the witnesses themselves because it's because what you're ruling on is based on some very fine points of fact. Yes. Um, you're, you're having to be the fact finder in this hearing. So anyway, I, I just thought I'd point out that this is not one of those hearings where the state just stands up and proffers a few, a little evidence and the defense does the same. You know what a lot of the topics, a lot of the cases that are on this topic, they deal with cases where police officers were charged with the unlawful use of force. Right. And you will see multiple defendants in the same case all move for immunity. And the cases have made it real clear. If you get multiple defendants, it's real important that you rule per defendant, Judge. You can't collectively say they're all justified or none were justified. You have to do an individualized examination. All the evidence doesn't have to point in a single direction. It can be a conflict of the evidence, but Tane, when there's a conflict in the evidence, who makes a decision as as to credibility? Yeah, the trial judge is making the credibility determinations. And, and I emphasize that when you do that, make specific findings of fact. I mean, again, this is a fact-related defense that the, that the defendant is raising. Now, Tane, you know that you can't claim self-defense if you're the aggressor, right? Yes, that's right. You learned that the hard way from your days growing up as a child bully. Yeah, I hit my sister first. <laughs> <laughs> and now we'll pause for a word from our sponsors. Oh, yeah, we don't have those. 
Folks, this is Wade and Tane, and you're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web. As always, you can find our outlines for these podcasts, as well as supplemental materials on our website at goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcasts at our email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com, and we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. And tell all your friends. And now, back to the action. So the difference between immunity and justification. Now, Tane, there are people who get lost in this quagmire frequently. Yeah, and that, there's a lot of case law on it for that reason. So let's think about this for a minute. If you move for summary judgment, Tane, let's just take this out of this context. Let's talk about a civil case. You okay. move, a party moves for summary judgment. They are unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Can they raise the same points at trial? Yeah. Of course, right? Yeah, right. Because, because it's up to the fact finder to find the facts, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. Same thing here. Right. If you are unsuccessful with your immunity motion, that the judge does not find that you're immune as a matter of law by preponderance of the evidence, defendant burden. Right. You can still raise self-defense at trial. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is a that is a valid defense, even though it might not give you an immunity. Interestingly, uh, the standard is going to be different and higher at trial, but you're probably going to have a different fact finder, too. So the jury may see it differently than the trial judge did. Absolutely. So the justification statute between it can be found in OCGA 16320, and we're not going to keep reading statutes to you, I promise. Even though angels keep getting their wings. Exactly, right? But also, you'll note that 16320 is not the same as 16324.2, which happens to be the immunity statute. Yeah, they're like 4.2 statutes away from each other. Wow. You do that by yourself? Yeah, in my head. I would absolutely have messed that up my math. Anyway, (laughs) so... A defendant can be justified in using force. Who makes that determination, Tane? If it's justification? Jury jury determination. But possibly not immune from prosecution. Who makes that decision, Tane? Us, the judge. So there is a very significant difference between an affirmative defense, justification, and immune as a matter of law. If you can keep that as a judge squarely in your mind, that, that if you are not convinced that they are entitled to immunity as a matter of law, then let them try the case and let the jury decide. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just remember, one's a pretrial determination. The other one is a determination by the finder of fact at trial. So how do you different, di- differentiate between the two? And there's some cases on this. And, and Tame, we've talked about a couple of cases that have come out recently. There was a case here out of here in Athens. I don't know if you remember where a guy was – maybe charged with loitering. He was walking down the fog line instead of the sidewalk and should he have been arrested? And it was a whole big thing about, can you um, fight an unlawful arrest? And we talked about that at, at some length, but the reasonableness of force, if you're looking at the, at your analysis is dealing with the reasonable of the reasonableness of the force used, you are generally discussing justification, 16320. However, right. By comparison, in an immunity claim, the only reasonableness discussion that you should ever be involved with is whether or not the the, the actor reasonably believed that self-defense was necessary. That belief was reasonable. Right. If you're talking about the proportionality, I guess, you're talking about justification. Right. 
and you're going to that needs to go to a jury. That's right. Um, so, Tane, we've had this hearing. Yeah. What is the impact of your decision if you grant the immunity? The case is over, at least as as it relates to that particular offense for which immunity is being raised. So, if you have a murder case, for example and you rule that the defendant is immune from prosecution because you've made a determination that by a preponderance of the evidence, the defendant has proved that the use of force was both necessary and just essentially justifiable. I hate to, I hate to use justification in that because I don't want to confuse people, but, but you make that determination, then that particular charge and the, the char- other charges related to it, there may be a felony murder, there may be a homis- uh, malice murder, there may be all of those, that goes away. The... The defendant can seek an interlocutory appeal of a decision denying an immunity motion. I think the state could can appeal the grant of an immunity motion um, because it's not really interlocutory because at least as to those counts, that case is over. That's exactly right. But at trial, you may remember, you're going to tell that jury tain that the burden has shifted. We talked about at the immunity hearing the burden being on the defendant. But but when you go to a jury trial, you remember Tane, all affirmative defenses, the state is required to disprove beyond right. a reasonable doubt. That's right. So there is a huge burden shift in the trial relating to justification than there was at the immunity hearing relating to straight immunity. That's a good point. Uh, in addition to there being a different standard that it's being heard under, the state also has a has a burden to disprove it. So Tane... There was a period of time where we had some law that is no longer valid, but we, I feel like we ought to at least discuss it just to make sure some of our older heads don't don't think that's still the law. Well, and you're going to have attorneys who are going to raise these cases in front of you, and you're going to have to you know note the date. I don't, my, a good rule of thumb for me is if the case is since I graduated from law school, I consider it new law, and if it's uh, before I graduated from law school, it's old law, but... Is that, That's is becoming that, less and less the case these days. Is that like the, the new evidence rules and the old evidence the rules? The evidence code is the evidence code, Wade. I've told you that a million times. The thing is in like third grade now. <laughs> so when you come to the, 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 what happens in the case, there was the old case law said that the defendant had to essentially admit being involved, being there, et cetera, in order to even have justification considered at trial. That law is no longer the law. Tame, we've talked about this on other cases. Right. You can have inconsistent defenses. That's right. And, and, and you can in civil cases. You can in criminal cases. I've it, seen them presented successfully to a jury. <laughs> and I, I just, wasn't there, I, but if I, I was, yeah, I was justified. I tilted my head like my dog frequently does when I'm talking to her. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's your verdict. Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for your participation. Well, let, let's talk about uh, some unique issues that come up in immunity cases. Right? Let's talk about the convicted felon problem. So, Tane, the law actually changed yet again. This is statutory law. You'll remember that there are statutes that, that well, Tane, you know, we're not going to do a bees in our judicial bonnet thing today. <laughs> hey, we might. But you remember the... Don't you hate it when statutes refer to the section and the paragraph <laughs> and the title instead of OCGA 9723 or I whatever? I know. Then I have to decipher where, what, okay, where, what, the section part, what, it, article? What is that? Well, the convicted felon statute basically, or the, the justification statute has one of those. 16324.2 
says a person is justified, it provides that a person using justifiable force is quote unquote immune from prosecution, end quote, unless that person is not authorized to carry or possess a firearm under part two of article four of chapter 11 of this title, which if it wasn't for Westlaw, I'd have no idea how to unravel that. <laughs> That's what law clerks are for, Wade. Oh, okay. But, but here this makes a huge difference because right. the statute changed. The, the legislature changed, uh, I think it was in 2014, the statute dealing with um, convicted felons being in possession of firearms. Mm -hmm. Part two of that statute, which still is relevant to justification, Says you can't have a shot off shotgun, you can't have a nuclear bomb, you can't have a machine right. gun, whatever. Right. They although, said, although that would be really cool if you could. But anyway, go ahead. They said that that is still a prohibitor from being able to claim justification. Mm -hmm. But it used to say, or if you were a convicted felon who could not possess a firearm, you couldn't claim justification. Mm -hmm. That law went away. Mm -hmm. I have had a lot of cases where convicted felons have claimed that they should be entitled to a justification that they were repelling a home invasion or whatever. And so they used the firearm that, quote-unquote, their friend had or their girl or their boy or whatever that lived in the house. Right. And to repel the invasion or to impel, repel the burglary or whatever. And at the end of the day, it, it's sort of like, you're not supposed to have a firearm, but you can have self-defense. And I think it's just a policy decision, Tank. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Does, I, that, have, does that come up with you, where defendants claim that, I'm a, yeah, I'm a convicted felon, but I'm justified in using force under this situation? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've never had it in an, immunity, in an immunity hearing, but I have had lawyers raise that, oh, well, Judge, you know, he lives in a really rough neighborhood, and so he carries a gun even though he's a convicted felon because, you know, he don't want to get jumped or shot. And I'm like, well, but he's not supposed to have a gun. So anyway, I don't, it, it's never come up in a hearing like this where I had to make that kind of determination. Um, I don't want to confuse the issue, but let's also just touch on this. If the defendant was a convicted felon first offender <laughs> when mm -hmm. the weapon was possessed, just go to the statute, which is 16-11-138. And that will tell you that they're not supposed to possess a firearm. However, the Self-defense statute, the just the immunity statute, will tell you maybe they could, yeah, if they can prove justification, just like any other citizen, right? Was it was was appropriate or proportional? I guess, well, really appropriate at the time of the alleged attack or whatever, right? So now let's let's assume, Tane, that this hearing, this immunity hearing, has been conducted, mm -hmm. and then you denied that motion. Right, and no, nobody's appealed it, or it's been appealed, and it came back to us, and they said, "Okay, you're all good." So when in Campbell versus the state, which we've got on our outlines, where can people find our outlines, Tane? At GoodJudgePod.com. The defendant filed a motion for a pretrial immunity hearing. The court ruled on the motion without con the hearing. Huh? I guess he gave summary judgment to the summary judgment. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Civil Practice Act says you can decide, or I'm sorry, the, the yeah. Uniform Superior Court rule says you can decide motions without a hearing, so I guess. Yeah. Not these. Exactly. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, if a defendant files a motion and requests a hearing, it is absolutely required. Now, there, the defendant can waive, either expressly waive, or by conduct, not asking for a hearing, waive his or her right to have that immunity hearing. But at the end of the day, if, if it's requested, 
the judge has to conduct the hearing. Well, I mean, I have to tell you, Wade, that if someone filed an immunity motion and they wanted me to rule on it, I'm not sure I'd be able to rule on an immunity motion without somebody putting up some evidence. Well, and I think that the idea was that these parties are trying to proffer their way through it, like we talked about before. Yeah. And they said, no, no, there's some warm hineys that need to take that stand yeah. and be yeah. under oath and be subject to cross-examination. Yeah, and what's the case on that, Wade? That's the Campbell case. And, and again, it's in the outline. Let's not read everybody, all, no. our stat, all of our case sites, but it's it in the outline right. that you can find at goodjudgepod.com. Woohoo! Um, folks, we, we really um, want to have your assistance and, and and I don't know how how more directly to ask for it than this. We're we're not out of ideas. Oh gosh, no. You but, and I are idea guys. <laughs> better than being ideal guys. But but at the same time, we only have the ideas of things that we confront. You may have something that you want us to talk about, and we just can't read your mind. No. Can we take? Well, we've tried, but we're really not very good at it. We need people to tell us your ideas on, on what you want us to talk about, what you want to hear, and the things that you may find useful. So here's all you have to do. You just send us a little note, just a just a topic. Uh, hey, Wade and Tane, love the podcast. Always start that way because that, awesome. that gets our attention. And then you just send us something at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That's goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And look, we're likely to use your ideas because, let's be honest, Wade, we're a little lazy. Thanks for the idea, Woody. That's why we did one on immunity hearings. Exactly. Thank you again for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. And remember that if an immunity hearing is requested, the trial court must conduct a pretrial hearing unless the defendant waives the request, either an express waiver or a waiver through conduct. Yes, conducting the hearing will inconvenience everyone involved in the process. It may delay a trial date. It may seem to act as a duplication of effort if the trial proceeds. All of those realities are true. But regardless, the cases are clear that if a hearing is requested, the court must conduct the hearing. So if you don't take anything away from today's broadcast, take that. Conduct the hearing. Conduct the hearing. The episode, this episode really was created in response to request, uh, one of our requests from our listeners. Do you think we have plural? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a, my mom listens every, every single time. So thanks, Woody, for, for the idea. Um, and, you know, you too can have two yahoos discuss an issue if you want us to. You can do that by contacting us via email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And you can visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for the episode notes from this and all the other episodes. And again, thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. And remember, Tom Petty was right. The waiting is the hardest part. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, 
who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.